Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. I do think that crypto does play a role in giving individuals sovereignty and giving people freedom, not just in terms of financial freedom, but in terms of being able to coordinate and act towards shared ideals in ways that wasn't really possible before. I've never found Nigeria to be an easy country to proxy for anything. What's happening here can possibly be linked to countries that have one or more of these additional problems. So you have a middle class that is not the right size for the size of the country when compared with developed markets. You have a society that is maybe plus 50% cashless. You have a low trust environment. Perhaps the legal or law enforcement infrastructure is questionable. Coupled with the population, I think all of that kind of drives the innovation and interest in faster ways of doing things, exchanging value, doing business in a low trust, low infrastructure environment. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Muddy Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. In recent episodes, we've been on a bit of a world tour of places where crypto is rising as an alternative to broken financial systems or global payment challenges. Well, it's about time that tour made its way to Nigeria, which in many respects has become the poster child of the value proposition for crypto in the developing world. Today's episode dives into why that's the case and looks at the outlook for cryptocurrency and what is something of a fraught relationship between a vibrant crypto community and the authorities there. Nigeria was beset with a financial crisis early on in the COVID-19 panic as oil revenues collapsed and a global dollar shortage meant that the US currency, which many Nigerians depend upon, became in short supply. That only further depleted confidence in the local currency, the Naira, and it plunged in value, fostering inflation. As a result, there was a surge of demand for Bitcoin and later for dollar-denominated stablecoins. The international dollar shortage was ultimately resolved, courtesy of the Federal Reserve's moves to pump trillions of greenbacks into the global economy, and the oil market recovered somewhat. Yet Nigeria's troubles continued, as did interest in cryptocurrencies. Protests erupted nationwide over police brutality, a movement that morphed into an all-out challenge to the government of Mahamudu Buhari. And some of the activists in that movement started using crypto as a means of payment to move money around without attracting attention from the authorities. And then as the price of Bitcoin soared worldwide and more Nigerians were drawn to it, the central bank took the drastic measure of ordering financial institutions to shut down accounts associated with cryptocurrency trading. Or did it? Last month, Deputy Governor Central Bank of Nigeria, Adamu Lamtek, declared that it had not banned cryptocurrencies. Either way, there is a great deal of uncertainty around the technology status in Nigeria, and a cat and mouse game continues between those who support it and those who want to shut it down. Yet, either despite or because of this legal wrangling, Nigeria has quickly become home to a vibrant ecosystem of crypto innovation, taking something of a leading role, reinventing money systems to address financial inclusion and other challenges. 
To get the latest on this and an outlook for the future of crypto in Nigeria, we are joined by two people with deep knowledge of the situation on the ground. Yale Badamosi is the CEO of Bundle Africa, a crypto payments app, and Adia Soho is a venture builder and operator. Before we talk to Yele and Adia, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So I was just thinking, you know, there's a bit of a theme here, a bit of a thesis. Uh, you know, we've been on this world tour, as I said, and, you know, we talked to Santi Siri about Argentina, which has had this, as we talked about, very repeated crises and all sorts of challenges financially, and how at the same time, there is this truly vibrant ecosystem of innovation. I'm excited to talk to our guest today because that really appears to be a similar story uh, of what's happening in Nigeria right now. Yeah. And I think I know we've both been very eager to this particular episode for some time on Nigeria, in part because Nigeria just is an innovation hub within Africa for many reasons, not the least of which is that Nigeria is the most populated African nation. And so there's a tremendous opportunity. It's its own market, the way that kind of India is, or even China is in, in ways that I think a lot of the world population doesn't realize. And certainly the crises that have besieged uh, Nigeria during this time reflect on kind of a history of reasons why financial innovation really landed in Nigeria. So I'm really eager to get that historical perspective as well from our guest today and kind of what has been fueled by this current moment. Absolutely. So why don't we turn to them, get them in here. So Yele, to you, welcome. First of all, just tell us a little bit about what Bundle Africa is all about. And from that perspective, as somebody who is actually engaging with people using crypto, what are you seeing on the ground in terms of demand and over this past year? What has been the growth story? What does it look like? Yes. So Bundle is a social payments app for cash and crypto. We make it easy for Africans, mainly in Nigeria and Ghana, to buy and sell crypto, store their crypto assets, and send it to each other as if it's cash. We launched the product a year ago, actually, so one year, April 23rd last year, and we've seen tremendous growth. We have over 200,000 users on the platform and you know, growing quite remarkably. And I think like, that just comes down to the sheer demand and desire for people to have alternative currencies outside of, you know, their Naira or Ghana CDs. And I mean, I can go into so much more detail in this, but I think that we're just at the beginning of the potential of what the future of crypto will be in, in not just Nigeria, but across the African continent. And then Adi, I'd love to hear the same from you. I mean, just thinking through your path and your career and your work, but also maybe you can help frame for us, like, is Nigeria indicative of what's happening more broadly in sub-Saharan Africa specifically, or what might be different about the Nigerian context that enables both of you to engage in the work that you do? Thanks, Sheila. Thanks for having me. So I have built a bunch of platform companies in the Nigerian market. I'm currently building an agriculture financing one. Prior to this role, I built out and got to a million plus users, an instant credit platform called Migo. And before that, I worked at a telco uh, trying to bring the telco's resources to bear for uh, startups. So basically the telco's data, the telco's access to customers and distribution and so on and so forth. So it's tough to try to build a platform business without figuring out how value moves from point A to point B. So inevitably, I've come at this money conversation from a bunch of different angles. Okay, so with respect to Nigeria, I've never found Nigeria to be an easy country to proxy for anything. What's happening here can possibly be linked to countries that have one or more of these additional problems. So 
you have a middle class that is not the right size for the size of the country when compared with developed markets. You have a society that is maybe plus 50% cashless. You have a low trust environment. So perhaps the legal or law enforcement infrastructure is questionable, maybe not up to par, right? So you can't really enforce contract law. Those are just three things that I think are all at an extreme gravity in Nigeria, but maybe to a lesser degree in other countries. Coupled with the population, I think all of that kind of drives the innovation and interest in faster ways of doing things, exchanging value, doing business in a low trust, low infrastructure environment. Yele, so can you talk to us a little bit about, given that frame that we've just gotten here from Adia, where are you seeing the kinds of uses that people are, are applying to crypto right now? With all of that framing, all of these challenges, where does it lead to? Yeah, I think like when I take a step back, try to understand what people use crypto for in Nigeria, I tend to put it into between two to three buckets. Maybe I might be four. But the first one really surprises a lot of people, which is speculation. So the thing that you hear about is, you know, it's about financial inclusion or it's about remittances or it's about inflation. But actually, you have to understand that some additional context to what Adia said earlier was number one, you have a very young population that is increasingly digitally native that are also not employed or not having access to jobs. And so they have like some amount of money and it's like, what do I do with my money? Now, you also have like these same people who are connected to some of the well-known startups in the, in the country, like Carrywise, Piggyvest, that allow you to save your Naira and earn an interest. But that interest is maybe about 8 to 10% a year at best in Naira. It's not very easy for you to invest in the local stock markets. And you hear about this thing called Bitcoin that has gone up, you know, in the last number of years. And you learn about other different crypto assets. And you're like, you see your friends who are doing this thing and they're saying it's not that difficult and you want to get started. What is the inflation rate currently in Nigeria. So I think the last report I read was for February, and I think it was probably around, I think I'm correct, it was about 16 to 18%. Even at 8% from those Naira-based accounts, you're behind. Yeah, exactly right. And I think when you actually look at some items like for food, where 60% of most people's money goes into, it's around 24%. So it's even worse for like daily essentials, right? So for a lot of people, crypto it's not even about speculation. It's like a way of life is how to make money, right? And this is a legitimate way for you to make money. If you can learn about things, you can read about things because Nigerians are just naturally curious. If you put a Nigerian person in an environment where they can figure out how to make money, they're going to figure that out. So that is, for me, the biggest draw. Then you now have, I'll say, the middle class, which are aware of maybe when they traveled to the US about five years ago, the rate was maybe 300 and something Naira to $1. Then the next year it's, you know, 420 to $1. And the next year is 500 to $1. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, just to jump in. I've been earning in local currency for the last 10, 12 years. And in 10 years, I am probably earning the same, if not less in dollar terms. So I'm asking myself existential questions here. Yeah. Watching this currency, you know, like you're in quicksand. My mom talks about the fact that when she was going to university, it was one pound was one dollar, right? And the price of a car then was like 
500 to 600 naira. One naira to one, one dollar, one, or one pound. I think it's one, one pound. Now you can't even buy like, I don't even know, like a small pastry for 500 naira, right? And so, I mean, like in my company, I was thinking about pensions and I was like, I'm sure by the time we get our pensions out, it'll be worthless just because like you can't predict where the naira is going to head to. So for, for the middle class and those people who kind of have constant exposure to the dollar, they're like, I don't want to keep my money in naira. And so those people are more interested in the idea of, of a digital dollar and a hedge against devaluation and wanting to earn yield on their dollars. You then have the third segment, which is more around remittances. And this gets a lot of the news, but essentially, if you're someone in the US who has family back home or you're in, in Europe, there is no easy way for you to move value back home, right? And so once we begin to understand crypto, it becomes very easy for you to send money within like less than a minute. It gets delivered to, you know, one of the products in the country and that gets converted to Naira very, very quickly. You have to understand that something that we also understand about Nigeria is that our payment infrastructure is actually better than a lot of the rest of the world. I remember the first time I went to the US and I was trying to move money and someone was like, oh, you can't send it to your bank account. I have to download Venmo or I have to use Zelle. Like for me, I was like, wow, like, so you can't just give me your account number and I send that to you immediately, right? So we locally are used to like fast instant payments. And so when you want to use remittance platforms that are expensive, that are slow, you know, crypto just seems like a, a better way of doing things and a more natural way of doing things, right? So that's kind of like the third use case. And I think the fourth one is probably the most recent one that was beginning to become more popular before the CBN restrictions, which was businesses who had multinational businesses that had um, dollar debt obligations outside of the country or were operating in different markets, needed an easy way, a medium of exchange to move value from A to B. And crypto, as it became bigger, as the, as the markets trade volume became bigger, it became a natural conduit to move value. So those, those are kind of like the four buckets to which crypto plays a role, um, not just in Nigeria, but across the continent as well. So let's spend a little time on the central bank policy here. Now, I, I won't ask you to speculate as to why that was engaged in or not engaged in. And I'd like to understand your understanding of what the policy actually is, regardless of what the official statements on it are. How has it affected uh, the use of crypto, both specifically within the, the work that you both are doing, but also more broadly, or has it at all? As much as we may love crypto, it does pose an existential threat to central banks, right? So I think even if you come across a central bank that can't verbalize, you know, in an eloquent way why they don't like it, there, there's a reaction. You're triggering a central bank. So at the end of the day, um, I think a, any pushback from a central bank is a very natural response. And we really shouldn't be shocked by it. We really shouldn't, in, in, in my point of view, it, it, from my point of view. I think any incumbent or anybody that is used to being in the center of a story will never be comfortable with suddenly being shoved aside. In, in, in nowhere, nowhere in life does that make sense. So. I think we should all just recognize that. And to me, in the conversations that I've been privy to, um, that is the driving, um, the driver of the position of Nigeria's central bank. Now, it may have been articulated 
with varying degrees of success and elegance, but that's the bottom line, right? Is, is DeFi is a, is a threat to the existing banking system. And Nigeria has done a good job um, of preserving our, our sovereignty in our banking system, right? As well as our ownership of our banking system, um, much better than many other African countries, I might add. So I think that there is definitely a strong interest in preserving sovereignty and ownership um, and they will do what they can within their power uh, whilst they try to understand this new technology. And, and, and I mean, look, if we look at the world, every week, every central bank is changing their position on cryptocurrency. So it's not like the future is clear or anybody knows their, their, their position at any point in time. So, so personally, you know, I mean, I get it. I get the resistance, but I also understand that, you know, you can't really turn this tide in a different direction. I mean, we're going to digital currencies, whether we like it or not. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. Yeah, so Yele, how is that that reality that Adia talks about, and but also the reality that there's going to be maybe flip-flopping on this from time to time? You don't really know, you know where things are going to stand. How has that affected the crypto ecosystem, or has it? at all? Or do people kind of see this the way Adia sees it? Like, oh, this is kind of inevitable. We're going to stay the course regardless. Uh, and yeah. only if there's something like an outright ban that makes it, you know, prosecutable or, or really yeah. dangerous in some way. Right? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, I think like, funny enough, from the 5th of February, and I think that's a day I'll never forget in my life as an operator in the space, right? My emails, my phones, my Twitter, everything was going crazy. And everyone was sending the same image of, you know, the CBN's memo. But as I, you know, spoke to our lawyers, spoke to kind of like our compliance team, I kept saying that it wasn't a ban, right? So it wasn't a ban and crypto wasn't made illegal, which for me meant that there was hope. You know, for the, the immediate reaction for a lot of people was a lot of skepticism. What does this mean? What can you do? What can't you do? How does that impact businesses and operators in the space? But I think like very quickly, even within the first couple of hours, like I remained confident because the general sentiment was one of bullishness. You know, people were referencing places like China, referencing places like India and saying how these ecosystems survived and thrived. And the fact is, even before companies like Bundle and some of the other players in the space came into the market, Nigerians were always doing crypto. And we drew a lot of similarities between crypto and the FX markets. And we all felt that crypto was going to survive. As a practitioner in the space, there are things that I think would be 
better discussed or said in the future, maybe like five years down the line. But I think like for me, my biggest takeaway was this idea of building anti-fragile systems. We got very comfortable with the idea that central banks and other incumbent financial institutions were being very accepting about the new. We didn't think about, is there a way to do this differently? And this period has actually forced us to rethink that. When I started Bundle, I was like, Bundle's going to be in 30 African countries by the end of our first year. I don't know our first year, we were in two African countries. And the reason why that was the case was because there was a lack of pan-African financial payment gateways to actually even connect the crypto ecosystem to the fiat world. And so for us to expand across Africa, we needed these fiat gateways to launch in 30 plus countries, and they weren't going to launch that quickly, right? So we just meant that we could only be in two countries. Now we've worked on some things, which I'm super excited about. One of our products is CashLink. It's essentially a, a fiat gateway that is decentralized and is not dependent on any integrations. And it's the way, you know, Satoshi imagined Bitcoin, right? A peer-to-peer -peer system. We've built a peer-to-peer -peer system that works not just in Nigeria. We're launching it in Ghana in, in like two weeks. And we're going to Kenya in three weeks and we'll probably begin to launch four to five countries every other week after that. There is no way without the CBN restrictions, we'll have been able to build or think about building anything that allowed us scale that quickly. And what's special about what we've built is that it's not limited to Nigeria or any African country. We can launch it in Latin America. We can launch it in, in the Middle East. We can launch it in Southeast Asia. There's a saying I love, which I heard recently, it says something like, because the new is unthinkable, we fight about the old. And without the CBN restrictions, the entire mindset that we had was we had to do this this way. And now we didn't have a choice but to think about the unthinkable. And the new that we've built is much better than the existing systems. And we are now anti-fragile. For me, when I look back at the 5th of, of February, it's no longer like, oh, wow, this happened. It's like, I'm really happy this happened because we're a lot more better off for it. So that's kind of like the mindset across the entire ecosystem in Nigeria. So fascinating. I was going to ask a bunch of specific questions about stable coins and your gateways and everything else. And we're going to have to get to that later because I want to keep running with this. As I said at the beginning, it's not the only country that we're seeing this, right? Where there is adversity creates opportunities. So I was just wondering maybe, Adia, you could also talk to me a little bit about the community itself, the innovation, the, the fintech, the drivers of this kind of world, and how living in this kind of environment of crisis and political challenge and everything else breeds that innovative verve that Yelly was talking about. He's talking specifically about the CBN moment, but it strikes me that this is probably a feature generally of the ecosystem that its creativity emerges out of that adversity. Is that correct? And can you describe that a bit? Yeah. So I often say two things, which I'll, I'll share with you. And I'll let your audience know ahead of time. The hosts are just meeting me and they don't know how cheeky I can be. So, so just <laughs> as cheeky as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> no limits. So I often say that Nigerians have more problems before 9 a.m. So when you are conditioned in that kind of environment, I think your level of preparedness to shift and rift, it becomes quite innate. But then I think you get to a next level when you recognize that and you start to actually modularize your life in preparedness for something going wrong. Founders are starting to get smarter. I think our ecosystem is maturing. I mean, the first set of founders that raised money 
you know, have been in the ecosystem now for about 10 plus years. Those of us in that sort of peer group are putting money back into the ecosystem and are supporting, you know, younger founders and teaching them resilience. I've also sort of come from a corporate background and I know how things go wrong. I, I sort of worked under regulation for a very long time. So there's that first challenge of sort of the natural number of problems you have on a consistent basis. And I can speak to this because I've lived around the world. So I know what it's like to sort of live in Nigeria and not live in in Nigeria. And the second thing I say is that Africa will disrobe a dodgy business model very quickly. When I'm at a demo day and I'm judging and I see a poor founder get up and say they want to do an Uber for X, I usually ask, okay, so once you've made the connection, what stops me from getting this makeup artist number and completely disenfranchising your platform? At one point, a founder answered me and said, loyalty points. And I'm like, okay, who do you know that has and keeps loyalty points on the continent? But I was in Silicon Valley at one point, and I watched a very interesting exchange between some app that's like an Uber for photographers and somebody that obviously needed a photographer. And the photographer would not give up his phone number. He sort of said, well, the law, and I might get mystery shop. This went on for 20 minutes. Two minutes in Nigeria, this thing would have like completely collapsed. It's not even a difficult conversation. You know, even subscription models, they get challenged here all the time. I have had to have long discussions with consumers about paying for Netflix because they'll question the model and they'll be like, you expect me to pay when I'm not watching TV and you expect me to pay in the hope that you will release something that I like. Let's explore a different, uh, you know, possibility for payment here. And I say this because I've tried to sell content before, right, locally, and a monthly subscription, it did not get any uptake. So you have to chop that up to like weekly, weekend, daily, half day, hourly, right? So that the proposition, the exchange of value is very clear to the customer. You know, so I think the two preceding points I've made are the types of, I guess, sentiments. Those are the things in the air that make our products look the way they do, that make our consumers consume the way they do. In my opinion, I don't take a lot for granted around here, you know, and I definitely enjoy a local consumer because they will poke holes in your business model very, very, very quickly and to your own benefit. Yeah, so there's a couple of things I just want to highlight in what you just said, Adia. One is, you know, we have a particularly defined notion of hustle here in Silicon Valley. And the notion of this in other parts of the world, Nigeria, India, you know, other places is very different, right? It's you looking out for your own, you figuring out if there's a way you can get a connection and get a network going, you're going to build your own network. You want to control your own business. You want to control your own brand. There's almost this crypto native sensibility really already exists in many parts of the world. So we talk sometimes on the show about how we're seeing this transformation you know, United States towards this concept that we should have more control over things like our data or whatever. In many parts of the world, this is not a very big leap, right? It's a very easy thing if it doesn't already exist. So it's just important to kind of keep that in mind. There's one theme of the show. I think it's worth really trying to spotlight and point out how these things are very different in different parts of the world. The other thing I just want to note again, we've mentioned a couple of times is you know, Nigeria is its own market to a large extent. It is a massive population. I think it's been like one fifth of sub-Saharan Africans live in Nigeria, are Nigerian living in Nigeria. And so the idea that this is kind of fringe in some way uh, is crazy. So thank you both for that framing. It's really interesting and helpful. I did think about this though. Like, so for instance, today I just used a new product and I was about to sign up. And so I looked at the interface and I saw it was asking for my banking information. And I'm like, I'm not sure 
I trust this because again, there's definitely that spectrum wherein the more digitally aware someone is, the more skeptical they are of like digital tools, but on the kind of like mass market spectrum, they care more about the value that data gives them than the ownership of the data itself. So if you were to put it on a kind of like a graph, you have this kind of like overlapping X, right? For me, I think a lot about like the value you're giving me, is that more valuable than the data? And for the most part, the answer will be no. But in the context of something like credit, wherein the alternative is to go into a bank, wait for four hours, they ask you for a number of documents, they tell you to come back in two weeks to bring more documents, to go beg a manager, and you still get no, versus giving some credit or your airtime history for you to get a loan instantly that you can use to go pay for like critical bills. The value data exchange is magnitudes different. It speaks to where is the immediate value proposition? That trade-off for mergers because you're like, okay, I need credit. You got it or not, right? That's it. Deliver now. For a long time, and you're right, it was the big conversation we had about the developing world and this use case. The one thing that everybody always pointed to as being the challenge was the on and off ramps that you've referred to, the, the fact that you've got to move in and out of crypto into local currency. And then, of course, the volatility of the currency being a challenge. I'm wondering whether, though, now that Bitcoin itself or any other crypto as well has sort of risen in value and is now a more widely accepted, at least store of value, if not you know, a payment vehicle, whether that has a impacted concerns about that volatility. Do people feel as if like receiving Bitcoin as a mechanism for remittance is an easier and more valid thing to do now? Or is there still this concern about the exchange rate and what happens to it? So I think like from kind of like the data points I have, digital dollars, stable coins, whether that is BUSD, USDT or USDC, probably outweighs Bitcoin in terms of remittances, especially from formal channels. And it really comes down to those two things you mentioned. So one is about like volatility. And especially now that, you know, most of these markets are driven by peer-to-peer exchanges. So the worry is when you send X amount of Bitcoin to someone, by the time it gets the recipient and you're changing, the price has moved and things like that. So what we're actually seeing is that digital dollars has increased a lot over the last kind of like, you know, couple of months. With Bitcoin, the value is moving. You don't really have as much liquidity in the peer-to-peer markets compared to something like, uh, let's say, USDT. And another interesting point, for a long time, I wasn't really a fan of USDT. Just because I came into crypto, I'd heard all the various stories about USDT, and it was literally BUSD or USDC. But one thing is clear, locally, no one cares. I never hear anyone talk about Tether or anything like that. Another second point is also around fees. In the US, more developed markets, when the cost of moving something on on Ethereum is $20 or $40 or $50, no one thinks about this as a big deal. But when you realize that the average digital transaction is less than $5 or $10, then $20, $50 sounds obscene, like you're paying five, 10 times more than what the actual value is. So what we're seeing is people, you know, using things like TRC20 because the fees are extremely low. And there's something I'm working on. There's this kind of like uh, paper. I think it would really give a lot of people outside of emerging markets, a lot of context into how 
people here view crypto and blockchain, wherein the utility is actually put in front of decentralization, which is super, super interesting because the vast majority of people in the West, the first lens through which you view crypto is decentralization. Like that's why we call our apps decentralized applications and apps. So it's like decentralization first. But in Africa, and in my own experience dealing with our users, is actually utility first, right? Utility first, user experience first. This idea of compatibility that I can move my crypto asset from bundle to buy coins to Binance and move it cheaply and quickly is more important than the idea of, of decentralization, which I think are interesting points to view um, crypto in general. We have a reporter at, at Coindesk, uh, Sundali Handagama, who's written quite a number of articles about Nigeria, and they're always fascinating to me. And she wrote one a little while ago about the growing demand for stable coins. And an element of what she did was to look at how that technology is feeding itself into some of the traditional savings groups and other, you know, I suppose, long-standing innovations that almost precede the digital world that have existed in really right across the African content. So savings groups, for example, I think they're called Asusu, is that right? I'm not sure. Do you know anything about that? Can you talk a little bit about how some of those traditional forms of financial innovation are now intersecting in any way with stable coins and other digital solutions? I haven't seen any intersections yet at all. So zero at the moment, but I'm going to pass back to Yele to see if he has. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting point. Currently, there was a company in Kenya that sort of did some interesting things with the idea of intersecting the saving circles with crypto. Unfortunately, they weren't as successful. And I kind of put that down to when you have a system that is so ingrained into how people work, it's not just enough for you to change the medium of exchange because that doesn't create as much value for it, number one. Number two is digitally native young Africans don't really do SUSU. They use platforms like CarryWise and PiggyVest where you have a digital piggy bank that forces you to save because you can't withdraw your money for the next only four times in a year. And they give you some kind of interest in it. Some of the things that we're thinking about at Bundle, and I'm, and I'm going to share this publicly, so maybe someone might even build this before us, but... Nice. Some news. <laughs> we are really rethinking kind of like the idea of savings and credit using crypto. I think this is where crypto is extremely powerful. So if you are using these traditional apps, you have like TBO rates, which at one point was even negative. With sort of like DeFi protocols, you can earn anything from, you know, 6 12% dollar-based returns. And even Aave today announced, I think it was 36% or something that is incredible. You know, this idea of, of being able to lend and earn very significant dollar-based returns that are even higher than what you'll have gotten on Naira is a really big one. Plus the fact that you can also kind of like lend your crypto and then get stable coins in return. We're doing some interesting things around the intersection of like saving circles, wherein you're all kind of like saving together. And because you know each other and you're trusted, if you want to take out a loan, you could loan from a particular group of people, but you only loaned 50% of the amount instead of 100% of the amount. And then the remaining 50% is constantly earning yield, right? So that intersection of those three products creates something that is completely new, but is uniquely innovative for a digital millennial African on the continent. 
to latch on to that point, I've got my fingers crossed for one country in the global south with a smart central bank that can actually align a central bank issued coin with some of its economic imperatives. Maybe do one pilot in one vertical, you know, with one set of incentives or one segment and see. I think then and only then will you see stable coins filter into Asusu. I don't know, because like Yele said, I mean, there's some really, really compelling crypto companies now, but I don't know that anybody has crossed 10 million users or how many have crossed one. Maybe there are a couple that have crossed 1 million users. So to, to sort of get to the level of application that you're talking about, Michael, you need scale. I think a smart central bank can very quickly achieve scale with a well-designed coin. I'm just putting that out into the universe here. So you're Michael and Sheila, you're my channel to God here. <laughs> we live to yeah. serve. We're not quite that well connected. <laughs> you know, I mean, I take your point, right? And something I've been saying, I think both of us have been saying for a very long time is that this is an ecosystem and there is a role for each of these different actors in an ecosystem. And so I, I do see the role for leadership by a central bank in this space to help shape a very dramatically what will happen here. I also think it's fascinating to me and something else I've been saying for a while is that I do think the global South writ large is really the breeding ground for, for DeFi. You're going to see pickup on DeFi as a concept really in the global South. Yes, it's fun to swap and this and that, you know, all that kind of thing. It's all very entertaining, especially during a pandemic. But I think where you really see takeoff is going to be in the global South. And I think specifically, I have my eye on Sub-Saharan Africa as a general market. And of course, Nigeria as the leader, I think, in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of the readiness for innovation, the what I call, again, crypto nativity, right? That transition to crypto nativity, digital nativity, I think is going to be really powerful. So uh, looking forward to seeing what's going to happen there. But one thing I want to shift to a little bit, because especially because we're nearing time, is talking about activism as a general matter. On a previous episode of the show, we talked uh, with Alex Gladstein and with Sudan Hodel, with Mo about activism. And so specifically in Sudan and how Bitcoin specifically was kind of a means uh, for value transfer to activists who were sort of working within regimes. But at the same time, it was also being used by those regimes themselves, you know, as a means of avoiding sort of sanctions and things that had, that had happened around them. I'm curious the role that crypto plays for activism in Nigeria uh, and within communities that you've seen. And is that something that you think about and you tie together? Or do you feel like there isn't necessarily the same understanding in the activist community about the value of crypto necessarily. I'm just curious to get your thoughts generally on that topic. I mean, I think this might sound like a disappointment to many. I'm not sure there is as close a link between crypto and activism in Nigeria. Yes, we had this moment in October 2020 during the NSARS sort of campaigns where crypto was used as one of the channels for allowing sort of diaspora to get involved in supporting these campaigns and protests. But I think like that was more or less the effect of the fact that crypto was being used for various other forms of remittances. Maybe sometime down the line, there might be a deeper connection. But, you know, if someone looked at the total amount of money that was raised, you know, during, for instance, NSARS and how much was raised in crypto, you know, the numbers are considerably large on the cash, whether Naira or like dollar, or like other currency side of things. I do think that crypto does play a role in giving individuals sovereignty and giving people freedom, not just in terms of financial freedom, 
but in terms of being able to coordinate and act towards shared ideals in ways that wasn't really possible before. You know, I think over the next five, 10 years, we will begin to see really, really interesting and creative applications. I personally believe that my biggest takeaway from NSARS was as young Nigerians, we have to think very differently. You know, there was this video I watched of a, probably like a 40-year-old Nigerian. He was talking about when they were our age, some of the riots and campaigns that they did. And I was quite surprised because the sentiment from our generation was like, how come our parents never did or tried to do some of the things that we're doing today? And you see how many people were on the streets, how people were rioting, protesting against injustices. And you're like, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have mobile phones, and were able to coordinate to those numbers, right? So they tried particular methods that wasn't successful. We, without knowing the history, did the same methods again, very successful. And the time now, remember what I said earlier, because the new is unthinkable, we fight over the old. The way to displace incumbent systems is not trying to fight it. You have to create new systems that make the old ones obsolete. So that is the mindset and the lens through which I think about every single thing I'm doing right now. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And before there was October 20th, there was June 12th in Nigeria. Mm. That was another massive bloody day of protest in the fight for democracy and, and what young people want. And I will say that I'm surprised that Yele has and I are on the same side of this argument. I consider myself a senior millennial. So when, when I was engaging with my senior millennials, many of them didn't have Bitcoin wallets and they were wondering how they could get money because we have more spending power than our younger counterparts. When you're talking about moving real money, it becomes a bit of a challenge because these are people that aren't really thinking about crypto. So I probably introduced 2025 friends to like bundle to go get a crypto wallet just so that they could participate. And these people were often in the diaspora. I would agree with Yeli. I don't think there is as strong a link as the number of digital natives involved in this protest would lead you to believe. Well, whether that goes into the future, I don't know. So many thoughts on this. And, and unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap in a moment. But I just thought it was actually a really interesting note to leave off on because Yella, you said maybe this is a disappointment when you started talking about that activism thing. And it reminded me that in many respects, you know, the way we talk about these things from the perspective of somebody here in the United States is I've got my convenient narrative that I'm looking for. The activism story is a good one to tell. And I, I believe there is a huge role for crypto and activism, but we want to sort of tell ourselves certain stories. And so you guys have like, what you've done though, which has been really, really important here is you've brought to us the nuance of what the reality is. The idea of Nigeria and other parts of the continent being a breeding ground for DeFi is fascinating. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. And the idea that you guys are building, and as you put it, you know, an anti-fragile solution that you, you have to build an alternative, not attack the old. That's the framing that I find really, really interesting here. So thank you both so much. This has been really, really interesting, uh, eye-opening. Yes. I've loved every minute of it. We'll have to have you back. I, I'm sorry. I just, mm -hmm. unfortunately, time is running out. So, Adia Soho, Yeli Badamosi, and of course, my co host, Sheila Warren, thank you so much. An excellent show. Uh, everybody, come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Thank you so much. Bye bye. 
You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Adia Soho, and Yeli Badamosi. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for our next episode where we dig into memes and narratives in the modern world. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.